ante Dios, juro. He is not well known at all, and suddenly he pops up. Como el presidente encargado de Venezuela. And uh, it was shocking. Look, when he first um, claimed presidency, I was like, who's this guy? Uh, just like everybody else. Lucia Newman and Dima Khatib know Venezuela. They both spent years reporting there, but they barely know who Juan Guaido is. And it's starting to seem like not many people do. But Juan Guaido has declared himself Venezuela's interim president. Not that there's a vacancy. Nicolas Maduro is still president. Que aquí hay un pueblo bolivariano. Problem is, many say the last election was a sham. Most Venezuelans hadn't even heard of Guaido a few weeks ago. So, how did this happen? I'm Impiaz Tayeb, and this is The Take. Well, I chased him around. <laughs> we went round and round the block. We were given an address at the very last minute and rushed in while security forces were circling the building. So it was rather tense. That was February 1st, 10 days after Guaido challenged Maduro's presidency. Lucia Newman's in Venezuela's capital, Caracas, right now. She's Al Jazeera's Latin America editor, and she finally got him to sit down with her. She told me she did know a bit about him. She knew he led one of Venezuela's opposition parties and that he had friends in the U.S. This is important. Hola, I'm Mike Pence, the vice president of the United States. Before he declared his presidency, Guaido had a phone call with Vice President Mike Pence. According to some reports, he'd actually been speaking to the U.S. for weeks. And right after Guaido made his big announcement... Pence got on the internet offering his congratulations to Venezuela and hoping for Libertad. On behalf of the American people, we say to all the good people of Venezuela, estamos con ustedes. We are with you. Muchas gracias. Y vayan con Dios. So when Lucia sat down with him, she had one question in mind. Just how big a role is the United States playing in all of this? Because for many people watching this uh, conflict unfold, it certainly looks like the White House is dictating the terms of President Nicolás Maduro's departure. Bueno, yo entiendo que, que para la comunidad internacional a veces buscar... And uh, when I pressed him on that, he, it was the only time he seemed to, to get a bit touchy, and he insisted over and over again that this was a Venezuelan process, that they had put in the years of hard work, they had put in the, de the deaths, the, the, the spilt the blood, uh, had the, their, their comrades, their political comrades uh, imprisoned and killed or forced into exile. So... The, the international communities and Washington's support, he said, is just was like the final step. They just gave the final push. U.S. intervention. It's a touchy subject in Venezuela, but it's not new. 
and Lucia helped us understand why. To do that, we need to go back to the 1990s. Venezuela's relationship with the United States was really strong, but its economy was weak. I want to take us back to 1997, uh, when Juan Guaido was, was just a teenager. Uh, now, this was a year before Hugo Chavez would begin his Bolivarian revolution. What was life like then in Venezuela? It depended who you were. This was a country that had, uh, had lived through or had, had enjoyed an oil boom, a lot of money. Then the price of oil went down, poverty increased. There was a bigger and bigger division between the rich and the poor. And that's what basically allowed Hugo Chavez to, to come to power eventually. And in 1998, after years of protests and a couple attempted coups, Chavez was elected president of Venezuela. He made good on his socialist promises, going on a spending spree with the country's oil money, and he famously opposed the U.S. government. These are the kind of things that won him massive support at home. But Guaido wasn't one of those supporters. What really marked him was a mudslide that took place in his state of Vargas in 1999. One of the worst tragedies in the history of Venezuela. He was 16 years old back then. The floods killed thousands of people and swept away hundreds of homes, including Juan Guaido's. We should mention he isn't one of the elites. His family is middle class, and they were left homeless for a while. It was a big deal. He was very uh, traumatized by this and very angry at what he and many others felt was, was an insufficient response on the part of the government that a government especially that spoke so much about the people and their needs, but that didn't come through. And that sort of pushed him into politics little by little. So Guaido got his bachelor's degree in industrial engineering. He spent years afterwards studying government in Caracas and the United States. He also got political, getting involved in Venezuela's student movement. This movement really gained momentum back in 2007 as the opposition to President Hugo Chavez began to grow, or at least to organize much better. The smaller, uh, new political parties started to be formed, one of them being, of course, Voluntad Popular. Voluntad Popular, or Popular Will, was one of many opposition groups protesting against Chavez. And they had support from abroad. Guaido even went with his mentor, the famous opposition leader Leopoldo López, to the U.S., to learn how to overthrow Venezuela's socialist government. But Chavez held on. He was re-elected three times. I want to talk a little bit about the United States. Uh, it, of course, has long cast a shadow over Latin America, uh, many countries around the region, whether it's supporting authoritarian regimes, overthrowing others. Uh, it's also had a lot of influence over Venezuela. When President Chavez was in power, the United States actively tried to get rid of him and support his opponents. It was clear that he had overwhelming support from the majority of the people, so they basically decided to just live with it. Cancer took Chavez instead. That was in 2013, and Chavez had named Nicolas Maduro as his successor. 
Maduro was a former bus driver who rose up quickly to become Chavez's second in command. Queda usted a partir de este momento investido como presidente constitucional de la República Bolivariana de Venezuela. But he wasn't as popular as Chavez. It started unraveling for Maduro fairly quickly. Uh, the momentum against him, the opposition against him, really sort of burst into the forefront in 2014. He'd only been in power for around a year, and we start seeing these massive street protests. Thousands of people chanting and marching uh, almost every day. What was bringing them out on the streets at that time? Well, the opposition smelled blood. I mean, he seemed weak. Uh, he barely won the election, which is extraordinary, considering that he was he had been selected by this near god, at least for some people, called Hugo Chavez. He was he was hanging on a thread. Then the economy just began to unravel. He was unable to provide uh, the basics. There were shortages of everything, and that just set the scene for going out onto the streets and trying to topple him. Some thought this would be the opposition's chance to gain influence, maybe take back the presidency. Juan Guaido was part of all that. At the end of 2015, he was elected to his first formal political post, representing his home state of Vargas in the National Assembly. It's interesting, you know, when, when we think about Juan Guaido uh, and where he sits on the political spectrum, some would peg him as far right, some see him as more centrist. The short answer is we really don't know. However, he has been in Venezuelan politics in a meaningful way since 2015. Do we know anything about the, the years that he was in the National Assembly that could give us a better sense of him as a politician and perhaps more specifically as a leader? Here you make it finally to the National Assembly. You're young, you're eager, you've won the, the majority in this assembly in such a polarized country. Uh, it's the only institution that is not in the hands of the government or controlled by, by Maduro, and they strip it of all its power. <laughs> that campaign to strip the National Assembly of all its power started less than 18 months after Guaido was elected. The opposition was on its knees. So it's been very much a challenge for him to be forged in a National Assembly that can't do anything, and where one by one its leaders are being imprisoned. By Maduro. Leopoldo Lopez is still under house arrest today. Enrique Capriles, he was once a presidential candidate. Maduro's government has banned him from politics until 2032. So now, it's back to Guaido. He starts to rise up in the ranks and in importance very quickly. I don't think he could have imagined it. It's been, it's been at a dizzying speed. In, in practical terms, he can't do very much because, as I say, the National Assembly becomes powerless. But he oversees uh, different commissions and he starts to really check or, or investigate the, the corruption on the part of the government. When I spoke to him, he's always talking about the economy and about corruption. He's obsessed about how much money, he says, was stolen from Venezuela and from the Venezuelan people. And he says that that's what explains the starvation and the hardships that are taking place now. Corruption gets the blame. So do years of economic policies started by Chavez and continued by Maduro. Now you have an economic situation in Venezuela that's pretty desperate. 
I was at a, in, a, in a sardine line the other day in Petare. That's a, uh, a very, very poor neighborhood. One of, actually, it's the largest slum in Venezuela. It's huge. And uh, we suddenly saw people rushing to get onto a line. People have been waiting so that they can buy a treat, sardines, one of the very few things that they can actually afford these days. All them Too, too expensive. We can't afford anything. They raised the minimum wage to 18,000 last month, but we can't buy anything at all. Everybody here is holding loads of bills in their hands, but they're apps, they're almost worth nothing. What you see here are 15,000 new bolivares. These in August were worth $250, a dollar with 60 bolivares. Now they're worth less than five. This is almost a full month's salary, but you can hardly buy much more than these sardines with it. A full month's salary for a bag of sardines. Horrible looking sardines, not those cute ones you see in, in the tins you buy. <laughs> and they're kind of chopped in pieces so you can sell them in, so they could sell them in bags of one kilo each. It's pretty easy to see why people would be so frustrated with their government. Three million people have fled the country, including half of the public hospital doctors. Nearly everyone who's still there lives in poverty. And now many of them are out on the streets. I am here for many things. First of all, for humanitarian aid. My husband has Hodgkin's lymphoma. He's needed several CT scans since last year, but I haven't been able to get him the scans to continue with his chemotherapy. As ever, it's the people on the ground who are being affected the most, hit the hardest uh, by what's happening. What is it that the Venezuelan people that you've been speaking to, what is it that they want? They want all that to go away, MTS. They want, people want to go back to a country where they could feed their children, where even if they were struggling, there was the possibility of finding food and medicine, where they're not watching their families disintegrate and going abroad, desperate, so that they can survive. Uh, Venezuelans are very nationalistic. They're very proud of their country, and they've seen a country that, for all its faults, uh, they were proud of, and they're not proud of it anymore. They're humiliated. And they're almost willing to accept anything for that to stop. More than two million people have fled the anguish inflicted by the socialist Maduro regime and its Cuban sponsors. The turning point comes with President Trump. Today, socialism has bankrupted the oil-rich nation and driven its people into abject poverty. He is a right-winger. He is surrounded by hawks. He, he listens to people like John Bolton, who just foam at the mouth when they think of somebody like Nicolás Maduro or socialism. And, uh, and so, yes, then they form the, 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 an alliance with these exiled Venezuelans and start to think in terms of how do we really destabilize this government through economics or force the government out through economic sanctions. Some people have told me they would have wished that it hadn't been necessary for somebody like Donald Trump to be the president. And they certainly look with, with concern and in many cases with horror uh, at Elliot Abrams as having been the man who was appointed 
to be the uh, the point man on Venezuela. Why Elliot Abrams? Elliot Abrams has been resuscitated by the Trump administration. He was the man who helped uh, plan the invasion of Panama. He was the man who was found guilty by the U.S. Congress of lying in the Iran-Contras. He was the one who covered up uh, atrocities committed by the Salvadoran military, the, the Contra revolutionaries in Nicaragua. He has a very, very, very sketchy past with uh, an involvement in Latin America. And uh, many people had thought that he would never come back. And here he is heading this effort. And he was appointed, I think, specifically to send the message to President Maduro that we mean business, we'll do anything necessary. Guaido has other supporters, many of his regional neighbors and much of the EU. But Nicolas Maduro also has allies. Venezuela is Russia's last asset in Latin America. Clearly, that is not something it will just walk away from. Other world powers like Russia and China came to Maduro's rescue, warning the U.S. against external intervention in the country. Russia, China, the United Arab Emirates, Turkey, they're all doing what they can to keep Maduro afloat, buying hundreds of millions of dollars in gold or loaning him billions. China is Venezuela's biggest creditor. And this could help Maduro sustain the government. Maduro could use the cash to deliver food and medicine to his people and win support in the process. But only if Guaido and his U.S. backers don't beat him to it. It's a showdown now between the opposition and President Maduro because the self-proclaimed interim president, Juan Guaido, is taking charge of what he calls an international push to bring in massive amounts of humanitarian aid. And they're going to bring it in or they're going to try to bring it in. And Maduro's going to try to keep it out. At least that's what we believe is going to happen because this is incredible. This is a defiance of his authority of even the borders of the country. You can't just bring in stuff into a country without the government's approval. So uh, this is a way of putting the military in a huge dilemma. Are they going to allow this humanitarian aid, food and medicine that is so desperately needed by Venezuelans to come in? Or will they block it? If they do, their families will starve. If they don't, it's almost over for President Maduro. In a country like Venezuela, the military is very powerful, very influential, and very important in all of this. Where do they stand on Juan Guaido? That is the $50 million question. Until now, the military has stood behind Maduro. And when I say the military, I'm talking about the military high command, the officers, the, the, the generals, the lieutenant colonels who command troops, who have benefited immensely have become very wealthy by being allowed to take part in shady deals, drug trafficking, the lot. Uh, And they're the ones that are hanging on for dear life. Uh, But they they seem to be standing firm behind Maduro. But uh, it's it's beginning to get very, very shaky. We've seen a few defections. If they see that there could be a U.S. invasion, for example, that they cannot... uh, fight off, 
that may may turn the tide. It's it's hard to say. There's a lot of speculation here about just how strong the military feels that it is or how well placed it is to resist what's going on. It's unclear really if anyone in Venezuela is able to control what's happening there right now. The thing about Venezuela, it gets under people's skin. The beauty of the place, its people, its history. Just about everyone we've spoken to who spent time there thinks what's happening now is really sad. I don't take my son anymore with me to Venezuela because I want him to keep the memory of the Venezuela he knew before. I mean, it, it's, it's, un, it's, I, it's unconceivable for me. I still am kind of like in disbelief every time I go back. <laughs> That's Dima Khatib. You heard her in the beginning, wondering who was this guy, Guaido. I was like, when did this guy surface? And uh, I I couldn't remember who he is. And then two days ago, I saw this old picture of him with Leopoldo Lopez, and I remembered him. Today, Dima runs AJ+, one of Al Jazeera's digital brands. But she started as a reporter. We talked to her because years ago, she opened Al Jazeera's Caracas Bureau. She lived there for years, still has a home there. I fell in love with Venezuela when I first visited after the uh, coup d'etat against Chavez. I felt this was a country that was going to witness huge social and political change, and I wanted to be part of that experience. Dima says Chavez was charismatic, inspiring, a reader, a listener. He gave people hope. Maduro's not the same. Dima says he's never been ready to handle Venezuela's economic and social problems. But she isn't convinced Guaido could do better. I think this is only making Venezuela more divided and more polarized because the people in the middle are not going to be in the middle anymore. They will have to choose between a U.S.-backed president and a Chavez successor. And as for our question, who is Juan Guaido? I think he just happened to be the next person available that is not in jail, that is not banned from running office, that is not exiled, etc., etc. And obviously, clearly the U.S. wanted someone who was very loyal and that would, you know, would play the game with them. Um, and I think they could have picked anybody else. So Dima seems to think Juan Guaido might not matter. And Lucia agrees. He is the man of the day. But this is not about Juan Guaido. The, the international community is not recognizing him. It's recognizing that Maduro is not a legitimate president and that whoever is in the president or the leader of the National Assembly has the legitimate right to step in as the interim president, not as the president. This is all supposed to lead to elections. So we have to keep that very much in mind. So it looks like Guaido is the guy to get Venezuela to the next elections, whether Venezuelans want them or not. And who knows what'll happen after that. The Venezuela I knew before, which was a happy Venezuela, unfortunately, when I go now, I feel this this heavy weight around in people's eyes. Um, I feel people are not happy. That's really um, difficult for me to accept. I do hope Venezuela finds a, a better option. I hope there is like some kind of new force, political force that would, you know, sort of surface from this crisis. 
polarized crisis that would be more reasonable and that would kind of find a place in the middle to meet the needs, the urgent needs of Venezuelans to have food and medicine and access to a decent life rather than talk politics and ideologies. Um, that's, that's the kind of person that Venezuela needs right now. Guaido did try to bring food and medicine into Venezuela through Colombia with the help of the United States. And Venezuela's military showed it's still aligned with Maduro by blocking it from coming through. That's it for us this week on The Take. This episode was produced by Priyanka Tilve and Amy Walters. They had production help from Morgan Waters, Dina Hezve, Jasmine Bayumi, Ney Alvarez, and me, Imtiaz Tayeb. The show's lead producer is Graylin Bashir. The sound designer is Ian Koss. Special thanks to Lucia Newman, Ricardo Lopez, Amparo Rodriguez, Mercedes Vargas Lugo Martinez, Dima Khatib, and Shane Wall. We'll be back next week. <laughs>